All right. good. So I just want to welcome the Restore 7 audience. My name is Chris and I'm the CEO of Restore 7. Um, as many of you know, Johnny and Elizabeth have been doing a series on anti-human trafficking and the abolitionist movement. Um, and in that line, we have a really awesome guest here today. We have Benji from Exodus Cry. Um, let's see, how, how long ago did you guys do Merchant of Souls? Benji, was that 10 years? Uh, yeah, Nefarious came out in 2011. So okay. almost, yeah, nine years. Okay, so this was an amazing documentary. If you guys have not seen it, um, it's a great film. Um, I'm gonna let Benji just kind of introduce himself and, and, and do that. So what's the, can you just tell our listeners what Exodus Cry is? Yeah, we started Exodus Cry in 2008 officially. Uh, and that was about a year, uh, almost two years after we had first learned about the issue of human trafficking. And so, um, so launching Exodus Cry for us was really to um, form a response and to take a stand against trafficking. And, um, and so, yeah, we did that at the end of 2008. And, um, and as, you know, it initially kind of started with a focus on um, prayer and awareness. And then as we got more into the work, um, it, it could sort of evolved from there. Okay. Where, where does the name come from, Exodus Cry? <laughs> it's kind of funny because, so in, in the fall of 2007, I had been praying into this issue of human trafficking for a while and really felt this burden to put feet to my prayers. And around that time, um, and, and my wife as well, we were, you know, it really gripped both of us at the same time. And, um, and so around that time, uh, a lady approached us who was a widow and she said, look, I know you don't know me, but um, God has told me to give you $10,000 to start an organization wow. to fight human trafficking. And so that was kind of the catalyst that mm -hmm. got us uh, started on the journey. And, um, but I had no idea, you know, how to start a nonprofit organization. I didn't go to anti-trafficking school, you know, like it was right, all right. very new. And so I, I just gathered some friends together and, and, you know, started to piece together a vision for some things that we wanted mm -hmm. to do. And, and, uh, and around that time, I just, you know, said, what do you guys think we should call it? And my friend, Brian Kim said, why don't you call it Exodus cry? Um, mm -hmm. after, you know, representing the, the cry, you know, um, the cry of like the slaves of, of oh, that's awesome. you know, from Exodus. Okay. And, um, so I was like, that sounds good. <laughs> so <there's> really, <laughs> really nothing, you know, too mystical about it. I can't really just take credit for it, but we just, yeah, you, you got a good idea and we ran with it. That's awesome, dude. Are you guys from Kansas city originally? I feel like you guys, were you guys connected to IHOP at one point? Um, so we, we were in Kansas City for really um, the, the first 10 years okay. uh, of, yeah, of our organization. And then um, we've, reloc we've since relocated to Sacramento and have been okay. there for a couple of years. Um, okay. But uh, we, um, so I was attending the House of Prayer and uh, leading prayer meetings and and this burden really came to me in that season. And the, I, the, the House of Prayer was a great place 
to really to to uh, cultivate that burden because there were so many people gathering together for prayer. And so mm-hmm. we were really able to carry it together and uh, in prayer and and it became kind of like the a birthing mm-hmm. center, you know, for this vision. Mm-hmm. And um, but when we started Exodus Cry, we became our own five separate five hundred one c three organization. You know, we knew that we had a very specific mission. Yeah, IHOP's okay. mission was day and night prayer, and our our mission, you know, was to fight trafficking. So we've always been a five hundred one c our own independent five hundred one c. But we're grateful for the relationship that we've had with with IHOP to be able to help support the prayer effort side of this. And and for that matter, I mean, we've partnered with so many churches um, mm-hmm. who have expressed a, a similar burden for this issue and who have participated either through doing some kind of fundraiser or hosting a screening or awareness event or just their prayer support. And so yeah. really grateful for the body of Christ um, and the church for their support of, of, uh, of our, co- you know, our cause in fighting this yeah. issue. So is there like, you know, you talk about, did the Lord speak to you about Exodus Cry or what, how did the burden like for you, like, how did you make the decision to like commit, like, this is what I'm doing with my life? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, it was definitely nothing that I had um, planned for. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, at that time was in a season where I felt like um, I I just wanted to wait upon God for a season mm-hmm. and and develop and cultivate mm-hmm. a prayer life, uh, an understanding of of the Word of the Bible, and um, and it was it was out of that season, this um, this season where I was kind of on this like deeper spiritual journey, that this burden for human trafficking came to me, and um, and it really awakened something in me uh a passion you know to to step into the next thing and um and so uh so i you know i felt like there was an invitation there from god to respond um to this invitation to um combat this issue and and then yeah i mean it's it's led us on an incredible journey for the last you know whatever it's been 12 13 years Mm -hmm. um just you know, starting out making nefarious, mm-hmm. um, our documentary on global sex trafficking. Um, we traveled to four continents, 19 countries and 42 cities documenting wow. the global phenomenon of sex trafficking. And so we have seen a lot through our journey. We've learned a lot and we feel like we've really been able to develop um, some very key strategic ways to combat and bring an end to this injustice. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. So with Nefarious, was that primarily like a media effort at first or was it, I mean, was that really all it was, was it really just to bring awareness to that? Was there like, what was kind of the, the, the plan post like release of that film? Was it really just to kind of awaken people's understanding to, to what this, you know, to the issue of, of human trafficking or was it also, when you talk about developing strategies, what does that, what does that mean exactly? Or what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, at the outset, um, when I first learned about this issue, there was very little awareness on human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And that was back in the early part of 2007. And so anytime I would go, you know, and just uh, speak on this to raise awareness, whether it be 
at a church or college campus setting, um, I would always ask for a show of hands, hands of how many people had heard about human trafficking. Mm -hmm. I don't bother to ask that anymore because everybody's heard of it. But at right. the time, yeah. no one would raise their hand. It was, it was yeah. very, there's very little awareness. So, mm -hmm. so that's kind of what compelled us to want to make nefarious is to really help um, tell this story. But for us to be able to tell the story clear, we had to understand it. And so that's why it was, it was, it was, you know, I look at it as my seminary. It was like a real process of traveling the world, investigating this issue, talking to survivors, people trapped in the sex industry, mm -hmm. traffickers, government officials, law enforcement, psychologists, and, and really trying to assimilate an understanding. And so, um, so that was kind of our seminary. And, um, but what we saw happen after we released Nefarious is that it helped to inspire a movement of people to rise up and, um, and respond to the crisis. And that, that looks like many different things for many different people. But to this day, we still get testimonies from people who, um, whose lives were kind of like redirected, you know, by, wow. by seeing Nefarious. Wow. And so, yeah. um, so we feel like it served a really powerful purpose, like at that stage for us. Mm -hmm. But um, the work of awareness continues. Um, there's so much education that's needed around this because there's a lot of saber rattling in the, in, in the anti-trafficking movement mm. um, with not much substance underneath it. And yeah. you know, having been in this now for over a decade, what I care about is effective strategies to bring an end to it. Yep. So one thing on a side point before you, you jump into your next question, I want to just mention to your audience that um, earlier this year on National Human Trafficking Awareness Day, we decided to upload um, uh, Nefarious Merchant of Souls to our YouTube, our Exodus Cry YouTube channel, so that people could watch it for free. So it is now available for free online on YouTube on our Exodus Cry YouTube channel. Dude, that's amazing. I It's funny, I actually had that experience. I, I watched it probably, I don't know, it was probably seven or eight years ago. And I remember it just totally blew my mind. Like I, yeah. I, you know, it's like I'd heard about it in, in points. I actually was in uh, Chiapas, Mexico. Um, I was filming with an organization, organization called I Empathize and it was a sex trafficking raid um, that we were basically kind of documenting. And that was, I had had some brief exposure to that, but your film just totally, um, I remember it, it was like, I'd never seen anything like it. Like it, it had, it, it broke so much ground and awareness, you know, and I think you're right. I think people are more aware of it now. Um, I find that people continually get shocked that like this kind of stuff happens in America, for instance, like, or, or yeah. Western countries, you know, I still think that there's kind of this idea that this happens in Asia or Africa or the Middle East or something like that, you know? And so, um, I just, I would really encourage all of our viewers to check this out. It's just, you know, it's, um, it's going to stand the test of time. It's an amazing film. Um, so let, let's talk about switch gears real quick. I um, let's talk about porn because I know that this has kind of mm -hmm. been like a new um, frontier for you guys. I don't know how new, but it's been something that um, you guys have been really, you know, I, I think that you guys are made, doing a lot of work around this. So you guys recently backed or partnered with uh, trafficking hub. Like what is, can you tell our audience what Trafficking Hub is? Yeah, um, so the Trafficking Hub campaign is something that we started earlier this year. Um, my colleague, Lila McElwaite, who is our director of Abolition for Exodus Cry, spearheaded a campaign to hold Pornhub accountable. 
for enabling and profiting from videos of real abuse, torture, sex trafficking, and other criminal um, activities. And, um, and that, uh, that this campaign to hold Pornhub accountable, which is the largest porn website in the world, has been, um, it's gone viral. It's been very effective uh, in terms of galvanizing a movement of people who are joining their voices together from across political views, religious views, um, you know, people from 192 countries have come together to sign this mm -hmm. petition that we created um, with now over well over 2 million signatures wow. and to hold them accountable. So it, go ahead, jump in. We no, no. Well, I'm just, no, I'm just, it's really, really, I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, we, the way that we look at it is like, you know, all, the whole, all these things are interconnected in the sex industry mm -hmm. and pornography is the marketing of prostitution. It's filmed prostitution. And, um, and Pornhub has assimilated, you know, Pornhub along with their parent company, MindGeek, has assimilated the, the vast uh, preponderance of, of, of content that is out there. They have amassed mm -hmm. all of this content into one site. It, it, so, Lila has run some of the numbers on it, staggering um, yeah. the amount of pornography that's on the site. And then they have 42 billion site visits per year. So that's they crazy, are, dude. the way that we view them is like a pipeline pumping raw sewage. Um, yeah, <laughs> totally. totally. And, uh, somebody had to swim upstream, so to speak and cut it off at the source. Yeah. And so, you know, on one hand, Pornhub is um, promoting, you know, the most deviant, uh, dark, defiling, um, violent fantasies um, through um, the mass distribution of the content that is on their site that is quote unquote legal Right. But then there is this whole other reality of videos. They have become uh, infested with videos of real abuse, real sex trafficking, real child sexual abuse. And, um, and so, so even just on that level, we, f we felt so compelled because of the criminal nature of what was happening to raise our voices about this. I mean, Pornhub had advertised that they pour millions of dollars into their brand and their marketing and they had advertised themselves as this kind of pop culture cheeky organization you know they had uh billboards in times square mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. pop-up shops i remember in malls and stuff like pop-up like, shops right new york yeah. fashion week it's right. really trying to buy their favor in the culture by presenting themselves this way so we just felt like you know it's time to rip the veil off of who yeah. these people are and to hold them accountable and so yeah we we believe this trafficking hub campaign we are we're going to drive it to its completion until Pornhub is shut down and their executives are held accountable. Dude, I love this. I'm like just getting chills like hearing you talk about it. It's like amazing. Um, you know, so just 
explain it to me or audience probably as well. Like what's, what is the nexus like for like trafficking or, um, you know, if you were to distinguish between people that are making, you know, and I, I heard one, one of the films that a Pipio guy, a Pipio did, I think one of the lines was trafficking is, what was it? The, 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 the choice for the people with the least amount of choices or the sex trade that was some line like that, you know, so you have, yeah. I don't know if it's two scenarios, but just for the sake of the discussion, let's say there's two scenarios. There's people that are not choosing to be filmed and exploited in a pornographic manner. And then there's those that obviously are, are choosing whether there's pressures in life that are driving them that choice or brokenness or whatever it is. What, you know, what is the, do you have any idea like what the numbers are in terms of on Pornhub, like how much of it is actual, like, you want to call it forced pornography or, um, you know, just how did you guys kind of figure that out? Like, what does that look like? Um, yeah. Uh, so as, as Lila began to investigate and to dig into this, what she discovered is that um, the instance of a video on Pornhub, you know, that was of a criminal nature was not a one off random thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were scores of videos that were of a criminal nature. And part of the problem was that people would try to get these videos taken down and, um, and Pornhub mm-hmm. would make it nearly impossible for them to take it down. And yeah. so, um, so for that person, it creates a situation of recurring trauma where it was bad enough that they were either secretly recorded or their rape was recorded or their child, you know, sexual exploitation was recorded. But now this is on the internet for the mass consumption of Pornhub's audience at home with Pornhub making money off of the whole enterprise. And it's, it's horrific. So for us, it's, you know, I don't know if there's a way to quantify the percentage, Mm -hmm. um, but it's enough to where uh, it's time to take action and governments yeah. around the world should be taking action against Pornhub. It's unacceptable. Totally. Um, and just, you know, to our audience, um, can you tell us just a little bit about like the size and influence of Pornhub? I know you said, what is it? 48 billion visits. Uh, mm-hmm. Are they the largest online pornography site? Yeah. To your knowledge? Yeah. yeah. Um, so was there, for some reason, I think that they, when you started all this, didn't the leadership have some kind of response or did they try to see you guys? Or was there some, I thought there was some kind of uh, back and forth where they, they came after you, whether in writing or what, can you, can you talk yeah. about that at all? Well, the right move for Pornhub would have been to acknowledge this problem on their side mm-hmm. to, um, you know, and, and to offer um, Real quick, and when you say problem, are we saying the problem is the known people that have been criminally recorded are raped and have put yes, in? Correct. To, okay. Yes. Um, so the the right thing to do would have been to apologize to the people who were victimized and offer them restitution. Mm-hmm. Right. That would have been the proper thing to do. Instead, they accused my colleague Lila of. Um, intentionally misleading people saying that her claims are categorically false so they defamed her and uh, when in fact everything she reported on was quantifiably true fact it was there's no it's not it's not even a discussion so it's very bizarre response and then 
and then they resorted to ad hominem attacks. Oh, these are the claims of a Christian right-wing group and tried to label us in ways that, you know, we, we, don't, we don't accept any of those labels. As Exodus Cry, we have one mission, to stop sex trafficking. That's yeah. it. We don't, we don't campaign on any other platform. Mm -hmm. And so really it was an attempt by them to silence and discredit us. And, uh, but, you know, the thing is people see right through it. Um, there's no substance in any of the statements that they've made, any of the accusations yeah. they've made. They are standing on a pile of criminal content that they have profited from. And, and mm. they know their day of reckoning is coming. And so yeah. I, I think they're scared. I think yeah. this massive multi-billion dollar company that has made a fortune yep. profiting off of the exploitation of other people are now terrified that their day of reckoning is coming just like it came for mm. the executives of Backpage. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So who, who, who actually owns Pornhub? Did you, was it a media group that you mentioned or are there, is it, is it individuals or is it like, there's a company called MindGeek. Okay. And as we, in, as we have investigated MindGeek come to find out that the names listed uh, as their executives are not even real people. Mm -hmm. So it's a very shadowy company and, um, the government uh, needs to investigate them and mm -hmm. find out what's really going on with this company. Um, we've released a series of blog posts along these lines, and uh, those can be seen at uh, exoduscry.com. Can, people can okay. read up all on this campaign. Awesome. So to that end, do you guys have any like tangible support in the government right now? Have you had any kind of responses that like, I mean, 2 million signatures, that's a, that's a, good amount of like activity on that have that has that yeah galvanized any response I, for you guys i think because it's an election year yeah that that people and and because of covid mm -hmm. that um setting up meetings has been challenging yeah. that being said yes we have and there are some very impassioned interested government officials in um investigating this and uh, okay. so we're encouraged by that and i think after we get through the elections and hopefully as you know the this you know covid pandemic lockdown um hopefully eventually subsides and we find a, a vaccine or whatever um that you know we'll, we'll be able to um accelerate those meetings and really push this agenda forward yeah okay um was was it lila who was the, who was the woman you were mentioning lila or was that yeah her? lila okay yeah. Was she someone who this had happened to, or was she just the researcher that um, was cut, was looking into the cases and people that had made complaints about this? So the way it started for Lila and I is back in 2012, just coming after releasing Nefarious, we had talked about, you know, kind of like what next. Mm -hmm. and, and, and at that time, we really felt like we wanted to investigate more of the uh, porn industry and their, their role in the larger system of global sex trafficking. And mm -hmm. So, so uh, we, we started, uh, went on a journey starting in 2012. Lila went and read everything that's been, ever been written on, on um, pornography. I uh, went undercover into the porn industry to film a documentary. Yeah. And, um, and, and together we started writing a book, which we've been working on basically since then. Wow. And, um, 
And so we're getting ready to release um, several documentaries on this subject, uh, a book on this subject, and really bring a whole new wave of awareness to the public about mm -hmm. what is going mm -hmm. on inside the world of pornography from a human rights standpoint, um, how this is being created from a public health standpoint, its impact on consumers, and, and from a distribution standpoint, yeah. what are these massive distributors of pornography up to? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so uh, clearly it's, it's very shady. Uh, there's, you know, again, like I said, we've, we've written extensively on this, exposing the criminal nature of what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. I, so just like, let's talk about the consumer side of this. How do we even quantify like <laughs> what this is doing to the men, you know, and now women as well, but you know, how does this, like, how do we even quantify this as a culture and as a society? Yeah. Part of the problem of pornography is that in our, in our media saturated world where everyone has um, access to devices now, no one is safe from it. And so mm -hmm. regardless of age, so pornography really is a predatory, uh, it's a predatory entity that trespasses into the lives of, you know, even young children, exposing them mm -hmm. to the more, most hardcore, graphic, brutal depictions of sex that set their sexual template and, and have lifelong devastating implications for them. Um, Pornhub, for example, does not require any age verification to get onto mm -hmm. their site. Um, all that has to be done is scroll over an image before it auto plays. So you don't even have to click on something. And so it's, you know, the, the amount of children that are unwittingly and inadvertently ending up on these porn sites. Another thing they do is use children's um, characters uh, to lure children. So Baby Yoda, Elsa, things like that, and, and then put them in this pornographic context. And, um, and so part of the problem of, of pornography today and what Pornhub has been a leader of is exposing young children to these violent depictions of, of sexuality. So yeah. pornography has become the main educator for children um, can, about sex in our world. And what they're learning is a very violent, deviant um, form of sexuality. And, mm -hmm. and it's scary. It's scary to think about the implications that that has for women. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like, you know, I feel like it, it's a vicious cycle because it, it, it creates like, you know, what you're saying, basically the perception or the, um, the idea of, you know, and you see a lot of what I feel like, you know, just this rape culture and, and hyper-violence and um, just these, these ways that I think it's really tuning men's brains to think a certain way about sexuality, which is horrible for, you know, their, the future relationships they have or their current relationships. I feel like there's, so when I think about like the consumer side of this, you know, it's like with it, something like McDonald's, is McDonald's to blame or is the fact that like, there's 30 million people that will spend money to eat at McDonald's knowing that it's like a horrible thing for them to blame. Like, it's like, how do you, like, how do we help men do like, you know, from your research and from like, what does it look like to, to, 
help and restore a man, um, you know, and in, in who's dealing with this or who's in this generation trying to walk through this. Yeah, totally. It is a supply and demand issue. And that's why so much of our work at Access Cry is focused on the demand and, and really trying to curb demand. And I think, you know, that has to be a multi-tiered effort. I think we need laws that have stronger accountability for men mm -hmm. who go out and rent women's bodies. I think, um, you know, like following suit after what Sweden did um, by passing the Nordic model that criminalizes the purchase of sex with a felony level offense. So that, so that men understand the, the severity of the damage that they are contributing to by essentially paying to masturbate inside of another person's body. Yeah. And, um, and that law is very effective at communicating a woman's value, a woman's worth, and the violation that, it, that happens to her when she is paid for. And so, um, so I think that uh, we need better laws in that regard. The other thing is uh, that, you know, I think just right now, because of how saturated our world is with media and stories, that we have to be more intentional than we have ever been about, um, you know, having educating our, our young boys mm -hmm. with age-appropriate information about yeah. what it means to be a male, to be masculine, to be a man, mm -hmm. totally. um, what it means to be a sexual being, yeah. and um, to instill in them from an early age a framework and an understanding and a lens through which to view what the world and to view themselves and to view women. Um, and so I, I, I think we need to reclaim our um, understanding of manhood from the toxic pornographic culture and instill mm -hmm. in our boys a value for love, for empathy, for compassion, for sensitivity, for vulnerability. Um, Dude, and, I love all this. That's so good. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's so good. Is there a, do you think people are aware, you know, men or, you know, the women that are involved on the consumer side of this of just kind of the dopamine responses and just the, all the chemical stuff that takes place when you start really engaging um, an addictive level of pornography. Do you think that, you know, from your experience in this, has, has society raised to an awareness that they understand kind of the physical implications of this, not just, you know, the, like, do you think, do you think people understand the addictive nature of it? I, you know, in my experience of talking to men, I think most imagine themselves to be in a moral and a spiritual struggle, struggle um, rather than in a neurological and a fantasy struggle. Hmm. And, um, and, I, and so I think that is a help, it's a helpful framework for people to understand the way in which our brains work and, um, and the way in which that um, exposure to pornography over time creates neurological pathways mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that trigger the, the, you know, the, 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 rept, the reptilian brain with right. um, auto response to want mm -hmm. to repeatedly go back to something that ultimately deep inside they know is wrong for them and and it's and it's triggered by um you know these these neurological pathways um over time so we we get into a whole chapter of this in our book called the triple x chapter but just to say that uh when when somebody is thinking about like i need to deal with my porn addiction mm -hmm. they do need to understand that the the 
neurological battle that they are in right because it is going to take time and yeah. so and the other thing is is that it's 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 a the thing that i mentioned about fantasy you know if somebody is bored if somebody is experiencing anxiety if somebody you know whatever the the trigger may be yeah uh, that leads men to into want to go into a fantasy world mm-hmm. and as an escape and and so if you do that enough times it becomes repetitive and so in order for to break that cycle you have to disrupt the fantasy and redirect so mm-hmm. when the anxiety comes and the trigger is leading a person compelling a person to go to pornography they have to disrupt the fantasy by speaking truth to it and saying yeah. this person you know that you know is this is not some subclass of hypersexual beings who's just really enjoying what's happening to him. This is a real person with a real history who is somebody's daughter who has feelings, emotions, yeah. thoughts, and you have to start relating to the humanity to break Total fantasy and yeah. then redirect the energy into something else that's positive, something yeah. playful, something that will bring joy, something, whether it be working out, getting exercise, going for a hike, um, prayer, meditation, jogging, um, are doing some form of artistic thing, some creative outlet. And then, so what happens is, is if you do that once, you're on the path of retraining your brain. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and so then you have to build the habit pattern of responding in that way a second time, mm-hmm. and then a third time, and then yeah. 10 times. And as you do that, you actually rewire your brain. And yes. so we have a whole chapter that's dedicated to this in our book that's coming out um, next year, the early part awesome. of next year, the triple X factor.com. I mean, okay. the triple X factor. And, uh, and I, I just encourage everybody to keep an eye out for that because it, it sheds enormous amount of light on the public health crisis of pornography. I love it, dude. I love it. I, I know if you guys are doing it, it's going to be high quality and it'll be really good. So I also encourage our audience to keep your eyes open for that. If you have sons, if you have husbands, if you just, if you know women, anyone who could possibly need this, it's going to be a great, I'm sure it'll be a great book. So tell me this, how, um, you know, how do we help or how do we think about people who've been exploited and exploited in all this? You know, is there a, um, I think one of the things that you said that really struck with me, and I think that there, that this is needed across all of society right now is this idea of humanizing people mm-hmm. again. You know, we have just, dehumanize everything i don't know if that's because we're viewing things through a screen if we don't have to actually interact with it i don't know what it is but there is just like it feels like there's a massive dehumanization way of Mm. thinking about our differences about whether it's political religious beliefs all the you know and i think in sexuality you see it as well just to a Mm. new extreme you know like this is not a girl who has feelings who has thoughts who has a father who has her own story you know and so Mm -hmm. i don't know what does it look like to or how do we help people that have been exploited in this yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think not everybody is in a position to help from the standpoint of, you know, providing therapy or you know something that would be more of like a direct kind of um, relief or healing um, activity. But we can all do our part in a few ways. First of all, by stopping the cycle of exploitation. 
Um, if men stopped buying women and children for sex, we would see the largest exodus of human beings from systematic oppression that the world has ever seen. The entire global commercial sex industry would implode overnight. Um, in the same way, if men stopped consuming technologized prostitution via pornography, we would also see a massive implosion because it's a supply and demand thing. So I think for us as men, it's like it was in the time of slavery. White men had to confront other white men about their use of black men in order to bring about freedom for the oppressed. And I, I think that we're living in a day and a time where we have to challenge each other as men to be better. We have to challenge each other as men to understand what pornography actually is and to be accountable, um, accountable to ourselves, accountable to each other, to our families. Yeah. So we can stop the cycle of exploitation. Then we can take the money that we use um, to pay for pornography um, or whatever it is, and we can start contributing some of that towards organizations that are on the front lines helping to make a difference in this. Yeah. Um, so that's the, you know, the second thing that we can do. Um, the third thing that we can do is we can all be a part of sharing this message. Um, and, and so you know, we, we created a short animated video that helps tell the story of what's going on with Pornhub that reached over 30 million people. Um, it was viewed 30 million times across social platforms because so many people were passionate about sharing it. And so oh, we can be a part of spreading awareness, educating others, you know, like Louis, uh, I can't pronounce his last name, but he directed a movie called The Cove. He said, people are, e you're either an activist or an inactivist. Mm -hmm. And I want men to be activists. We're living in a urgent hour where there is a crisis of injustice breaking forth across the planet called the sexual exploitation, commercial sexual exploitation of women and children. It's our job as men to rise up as gatekeepers of our society and protectors and to put an end to it. You're blowing my mind, I love that. Your analogy of it took white men standing up against other white men, you know, that was, that's really, really profound. Um, thinking, one thing I wanna to get to, what did you, how did you define pornography? I think you called it, did you call it the marketing of prostitution? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dude, that's a great, that is a great definition. I've never thought of it that way, but that's a really, that's awesome. Um, okay, so, a few more questions here. Just, you know, what is your take on people involved in the pornography industry that are doing it in a non-criminal or non-coerced way? I mean, like you have this kind of, um, are you familiar with OnlyFans and things like this that have kind of split off is these, you know, and, and what's interesting to me about it is there's this kind of belief that um, this is giving women power back, you know, that they are now really kind of in the charge of their of life. You know, they're they're, if you want to call it, you know, expressing their their feminism through this way and they're the ones in control and they're this it's it's what's interesting about it is it's they're they're taking it on as kind of this you know we're not doing pornography through companies we're doing it through our own platforms our own websites we're in control it's being spun the way that i'm seeing like articles written about it and stuff is this kind of um really feminist movement which is which is interesting to me i don't know if you're familiar with this at all or just kind of what your take on this is yeah well i mean that would not that would be a form of liberal feminism, not radical feminism, which are two vastly different things. And um, yeah, liberal feminism is pushing raunch culture as, as 
and you know the the cover narrative of these efforts to promote prostitution as a great job mm -hmm. um, depends mm -hmm. on on the illusion that it can be empowering on the illusion that it's sexually liberating but mm -hmm. for those of us that have been in this field for a while you know we know that that is just that a cover narrative it's a lie mm -hmm. it's a deception it's a delusion and you don't have to dig very far to to find a deeper truth there's decades mm -hmm. of international research that clearly document how damaging every form of the commercial sex industry actually is to the people who are in it and so if you're in the sex industry i understand why you would have to to promote a cover narrative to survive the humiliating and destructive and violating experience of being in the sex mm -hmm. industry but the reality is is that over time it, it damages and destroys people's lives 68 percent one study from nine countries um the largest study ever done on prostitution showed that that um that 68 percent suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. it's practically universal among people who are wow. in prostitution so every every once you know every so often we hear about the the latest version of prostitution that's that's now empowering at mm -hmm. first it was webcamming and now it's you know only fans and you know it, it's, it goes through its cycles but at the end of the day uh it is it's it's all a construct of male demand regardless of the expression mm -hmm. of it it is it is it is, it is an industry that is predicated on meeting the demands of men so webcamming can be one of the most damaging forms of prostitution because you're subjected continually to the um, derogatory remarks and criticisms of of men and and uh, deviant fantasies projected onto them over time it's impossible not to internalize the projection yeah. of those yeah. expressed urges fantasies words and uh, and that's damaging to people so we need to stop buying into the lie that sex can just be anything that we want it to be the truth is that sex has parameters right the sex is valuable like otherwise rape wouldn't be a thing otherwise mm -hmm. child sexual abuse wouldn't be a thing so we need to stop buying into this lie that you know sex can just be whatever we want to do mm -hmm. whatever we want it to be the the sex industry has it's so ironic that they claim to enhance sexuality in our world mm -hmm. and anybody who's to critique it is just a prude the truth is that all the sex industry it, it does is cheapen sexuality mm -hmm. if it's yep. so if it's you know uh the way that we understand sex is as something very powerful very beautiful very meaningful and pleasurable and really a extremely unique and mysterious way of bringing about intimacy between two people well why not save it for that like mm -hmm. the, the, if that can be bought um immediately obviously there's a cheapening effect that's taking place uh taking place why not save it for somebody who cares about you cares about your humanity and doesn't think that they can just buy that off of you and uh, the more that we give into that the more we're going to see de dehumanizing relationships widespread sexual exploitation this continuing deepening of the delusion that that women are sex objects for our consumption two-dimensional objects mm -hmm. um, it's disastrous it's disastrous for a society and and for our own personal well-being and mental health 
and and for our fam for the survival of the nuclear family like we yeah. we have to regain control the yeah. sex industry has the rampant spread of the sex industry is utterly destroying our world wow dude that's really good um okay so okay so well i'm hearing some feedback are you hearing that feedback no no okay there we go um I'm going to switch into kind of a different topic here. You know, on your site, you guys talk about ending the cycle of sexual exploitation, um, but even more than that, writing a new narrative. I love that idea, this idea of writing a new narrative. What, what is the new narrative for this area of culture? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I think that the pornographic culture is built on a, uh, a set of, of ideas that are inherently dehumanizing. Um, when we think about the culture that we're living in today, we we have to understand that, it, that we are living in a pornographic culture, which means that we're living in a culture of which pornography is the wallpaper of our lives. And so the question that has to be asked is, what is the story that pornography is telling? It, if it's if it's so um, um, if it's become so widespread in our society, then what is it that pornography is telling us about what it means to be a man, about what it means to be a woman, about what it means to be a sexual being? Well, the message is clear. The porn culture is casting men as sexual predators, casting women as sexual objects, and casting sex as a meaningless recreational act or as a vehicle for abuse. The pornographic culture is, you know, weaponizing the male male sexuality in a way that is deepening the divide between men and women and mm -hmm. and and causing this 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 deepening wound between us and i have so much to say about the you know porn culture and its in, impact on us but as you know social beings we grow up internalizing those stories in the construction of our identity worldviews value um the you know the way we see ourselves and others in relationships and it's devastating. So for us, we, we feel like we're at a moment where we have to reclaim our own story from the porn culture. We have to re reject and renounce the lies that this is who we are, that this is all that we are. And, and we, we have to reclaim the truth that, that you know, as human beings, that fundamentally what, what quantify, what qualifies us apart from all other creatures is the love and the empathy and the intelligence and capacity to operate out of that love and empathy to enhance um, and nourish healthy, intimate relationships and um, that support family. I mean, the things that we're seeing humans do to each other, we do not even see in the animal kingdom. Yeah. It is evil. Yeah. And, and so, so we want to reclaim our identity from the porn culture as loving and compassionate people with a capacity for, for deep and meaningful, healthy, nurturing relationships that aren't um, cannibalistic in nature. Um, and so I think that's, yeah. That's really, dude, that's really powerful. That's so good. Um, so practically speaking, you know, and I think we've hit on this in, in different ways, but you know, what does it look like to shift culture when we think about ending human trafficking, when we think about ending pornography? Um, are there any practical ways that we can think about shifting culture um, in regards to human trafficking and, and ending pornography? 
Well, right now, the way the battle lines are being drawn up across the nations, when you look out across the landscape of the nations, is, is really centered around this issue of what the pro-sex work movement is trying to promote and advance versus what the abolition movement is contending for. And, uh, and so the pro-sex work movement is, is promoting this cover narrative about the sex industry that says this is a system of empowerment, this is a system mm -hmm. of sexual liberation. This is a human right. And it, it, it advertises and promotes itself as something so um, appealing and progressive for humanity. Yes. Um, and, um, and this is not unlike what the pro-slavery movement did um, in the 1800s. Wow. The pro-slavery movement had a cover narrative about you know, slavery being a good institution that life in the West Indies and Americas was better than it was in the harsh conditions of Africa. And that the people, the slaves that were brought over on these ships would enjoy every delicacy and were given, you know, um, the best perfumes. And, and it was, they built this cover narrative to promote slavery as a good institution. And mm -hmm. this is, was coming from high level church leaders, government officials, um, and it was throughout our society. So William Wilberforce uh, investigated slavery at that time and discovered the deeper truth that this cover narrative was built on a house of cards, that it was a bunch of lies, that it was um, a deception and delusion, um, that, that really mm -hmm. slavery was about uh, uh, protecting um, free labor um, and, you know, to, to cause the economy to thrive and people's self-protecting nature allowed it to continue for hundreds yeah. of years. Well, mm -hmm. Wilberforce realized that if we are going to put an end to this, we have to shift the locus of thought and the mass consciousness of society, um, before we can, before we can think about passing new laws. And mm -hmm. he spent 46 years campaigning to shift mindsets and to displace this cover narrative with the deeper truth in order to pave the way and open the doors for abolition legislation. And that's what he did. So I think he was a great model and example and laid for the blueprint for us today that we can follow in terms of shifting mindsets to pave the way for the changing of laws. So we think about you know, this cover narrative that's being promoted. I think that it's important for us to, to um, address these lies and you know what, what we as abolitionists say is that no this isn't an empowering sexually liberating industry it's an industry of gender inequality violence and exploitation mm -hmm. and um and that is quantified again by you know untold amounts of research that have gone into it and so i think that what we need and what we have the opportunity to be a part of in our generation is to shift the locus of thought and the mass consciousness of society regarding prostitution for the first time in our history. Um, it was like when uh, Victor Hugo said, um, we say that slavery has vanished from European civilization, but this is not true. Slavery still exists, but now it applies only to women and its name is prostitution. Wow. And what he was putting his finger on is this idea that men had given up their entitlement to subjugate, oppress and exploit other men through the system of slavery but they had not given up their entitlement to subjugate, oppress, and exploit women through the system of prostitution. 
it's time for us to change that. Dude, that's so good. That's so good. You know, and as you're talking about this too, you know, I feel like they're, you know, one of the things that you can say about the culture, whether it is always directed in the right way is there, there seems to be a huge um, focus and interest and energy to be putting into fighting, fighting certain things, whether you want to call it social justice. And obviously there, there's all sorts of offshoots of that, that probably, you know, you and I both wouldn't agree with how it, how it takes place, but there is a, I think there is a way to talk about this in a way that galvanizes support from both sides, from, from many different people, from, you know, a, a political position, if you will, you know, and there is, I think that there's something about this that seems to trump um, a lot of other differences when you can come together and just focus on this issue, you know, that, so is, is that an accurate analysis, you think? Is there, does there seem to be that energy in society right now? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't know, there's something in the air this year because, uh, I mean, it's just such, it just feels like we're in such a different season. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic about what's happening right now in our culture um, related to the amount of awareness and activism that I'm seeing happen this year. And so my hope right now is that, you know, we would continue to ride the wave of this momentum until really deep uh, systemic change can happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, so just kind of some final things. Where, you know, how can how can we how can we support you? How can our viewers support you? You know, where I, I would definitely recommend everyone to check out Nefarious if you haven't. The book's coming out. You said early next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. you guys are ExodusCry.org or yeah. Okay. Yeah, ExodusCry.com. We're, we're doing our end of year fundraiser this year centered around the idea of protecting children from ex- ex- exploitation. And um, because uh, in, in our view, you know, this year it, it has become very highlighted and clear to mm-hmm. us that our children are under attack. And so regardless of what people think about all the issues we talked about, it is very clear that our children are being targeted for sexual exploitation. Mm-hmm. And we think that that is something that everybody should be a part of helping to stop and put an end to. And so we have several initiatives in the works to address that. And, you know, we, we've been fighting this for over 10 years, yeah. and, uh, but we're putting a major emphasis on that point. And so, you know, we would love it if um, everyone out there would participate in helping to support the work of Exodus Cry. You know, this fall time is our most critical time of year to raise funds um, where we're trying to raise, you know, um, the, the capital and the resources, you know, to, to get through another year, you know, we're not, none of us are in this, um, to, you know, uh, to make, yeah, to, to make a bunch of money for us. It's about the passion, the work, the mission. Um, but, uh, you know, in order for us to carry it out with excellence, our projects, um, we rely on partners and donors. And so we would just be grateful for anyone who, you know, would consider, um, signing up to be a partner with Exodus Cry. Awesome, dude. Um, you guys' website's amazing, by the way. You did such a killer job oh, on, on laying that out. And then people can probably still sign the petition, right? Or go check that out. And you guys are on Instagram, right? Yeah. Instagram. And you check out Exodus Cry on Instagram. And that, that will basically lead wherever else people need to go. They can check out traffickinghub.com. That's our campaign against Pornhub. But I, I would direct people to um, our Exodus Cry Instagram. I'm on Instagram as well, Benji Nolo, and would love to connect with anyone in your audience who's interested in this subject. Awesome, dude. All right, my last question. Um, 
Is there anything that you feel like that we didn't cover here that you want to share? Or I'm also just really curious if the Lord has given you anything like, just like in any kind of promise or anything that you just feel like you hold on to that you're like, this is what I'm, you know, you said a lot today and it was so good. I'm just, I'm wondering if there's kind of this, this breakthrough moment that you feel like you've been, you know, in charge of, or the Lord has let you in on just in terms of your own relationship and your own leadership and what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, for us, we derive our passion from the, the model and the example of Jesus. For us, Christianity is more than a set of beliefs. Um, when Jesus was asked, you know, what, what does it look like to, um, you know, what does it look like to, to, to be an authentic, uh, you know, follower of God? He, he told the story of the Good Samaritan. And, um, and that was all about um, uh, responding to vulnerability. James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion is ministry to orphans and widows in their trouble. And so Jesus tells this story where he says, you know, there was these, the, this priest and this, there was this person who was beaten, stripped naked and left for dead, literally. Mm-hmm. And a priest and a Levite came by, they passed by on the other side of the road. He, he specifically calls out religious leaders. And as the example of the ones who lacked an authentic faith, then he says a Samaritan came by. Yeah, Samaritan was a person who was in the wrong group with the wrong title, the wrong belief system, the wrong, you know, everything Mm -hmm, is basically, mm -hmm. you know, how how Christians would think about, you know, like a Jehovah's Witness or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, he specifically uses them as the hero of the story. Because basically the point that he's making is that it's not as important whether you have all your every single right doctrine. What is your response to vulnerability? Now, of course, Mm -hmm. we, we always want to see good doctrine, good theology, but what is your response to vulnerability? Because many people hide behind their theology and hide behind their notion of being saved as a way to insulate themselves from the real world responsibility that we have to address vulnerability in the world and the threat that is faced by orphans, widows, you know, young children, um, vulnerable populations and demographics throughout our world. There's no more vulnerable population of people in our world today than those who are trapped inside the commercial sex industry. And so we are inspired by a modeling example of Jesus to follow that. I have many dreams and prophetic experiences, but for me, it, it's, it's those, those are, per, those are personal, meaningful, but I don't, I, I didn't need one of them to yeah. follow what I see modeled by Jesus yeah. And, um, and so I, you know, we're compelled by that. We're grateful for the love and compassion that was modeled in Jesus's life. And, and our goal is to express that same love and compassion, you know, to bring about the fragrance of Christ to those who are hurting and suffering and vulnerable um, in order to bring about deliverance, freedom, and healing. I love it, dude. It's so good. Okay, well, um, I just encourage everyone to check Exodus Cry out. The Instagram's amazing. The documentaries are amazing. Benji, you're amazing. You want to share anything else before we get off here? Uh, it's just kind of funny because the sun's <laughs> been going down. <laughs> I know, yeah. just like you're, just like, like, you're just like a black you know? face. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Halloween version of like right. a talk about anti-trafficking because yeah. uh, it's appropriate for, for the time of year. <laughs> <laughs> but so funny. anyhow, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I know you've got a lot going on and, uh, and I do as well. I'm glad we were able to connect and uh, hopefully we'll do it again sometime. 
Yeah, I really appreciate it, Benji. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later.